welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. You know, Mark, I think our listeners know that this is not a podcast about current events per se, you know, but rather we tend to discuss abstractions and hopefully create a lens by which to view issues, current or otherwise. But sometimes we are inspired by current events. Uh, I remember, for example, after Russia invaded Ukraine, we wanted to talk more about corruption and how it affects not only autocrats like Putin, but also our politics at home. That was our episode that we called Totalitarian. And our episode called Brain Frog was about the notion that America has gotten dumber over the last few decades, as evidenced in particular by recent events. And today's episode is an expansion on that one, in part because you were inspired, Mark, by something that happened in the news recently. Yes, I was. Earlier in June, the Texas Republican Party adopted a new platform, and it included, I kid you not, planks that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 should be repealed, the 2020 election was not legitimate, and that Texans should vote on seceding. It reminded me of our long-running conversations about paranoia, particularly delusional paranoia, and its impact on the community. So today we'll dive into why paranoia, particularly in its delusional form, exists, and why it seems to be becoming a more common affliction, the danger it poses, and what we could do about it. So Mark, in the Brain Frog episode, we define quote-unquote dumbness in the societal or political context as being some combination of sheer ignorance, which is often a result of the Dunning-Kruger effect, intellectual stubbornness, or reduced critical thinking skills. The phenomenon of delusional paranoia is a kind of extension of that dumbness, but it's a lot more dangerous, right? I agree. Let's start, though, by defining a few terms, because the terms paranoia and delusional paranoia have pretty significant pejorative footprints. I think of paranoia as thinking and feeling like you are being threatened in some way. Whether or not there is evidence substantiating the perceived threat is a different issue. And that's important because it means paranoia can exist completely independently of objective reality. It's a feeling. It's an internal state of mind. It also makes it hard to shake off because we never have completely accurate information about what's going on around us, which might affect us. So we can rarely be completely certain as to whether or not a paranoid feeling is justified. There's that old joke that sometimes you're being paranoid and sometimes people really are out to get you. <laughs> That's right. But delusional paranoia is when there is sufficient evidence that a reasonable third party would conclude there is no threat. But we still believe the threat is real and act on that belief. And unfortunately, the consequences of that can be very dangerous. I mean, even deadly. What's worse, delusional paranoia is akin to addiction. Once you go down the rabbit hole, it's very hard for anyone else to get you out of it because your paranoia can explain away everything, including objective data falsifying your belief. Only you can take the first step out of the rabbit hole. An interesting twist is that paranoia can also be self-fulfilling, actually creating the conditions to make it then justified to be paranoid. I think of emperors like Nero and Caligula. I mean, they were so paranoid and their actions based on that paranoia actually made them susceptible to real threats. It also makes me think of when we previously talked about the danger of buying guns. You can actually create the danger from which you are previously and inappropriately afraid of. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of examples throughout both world history and U.S. history of the dangers of such delusional paranoia whether it's sponsored by public officials or by private groups and organizations. And speaking of use by public officials, I mean, paranoia has been used as a tool, you know, by autocrats throughout history. I mean, Hitler, of course, is the big example with the big lie, the way he demonized Jews and, of course, other people in order to unite Germany. 
More recently, Putin used the threat posed by Ukrainian neo-Nazis to whip up support for invading Ukraine, even though neo-Nazi Ukrainians don't seem to exist in any significant number. Yeah, and many countries around the world reinforce their own internal power by spreading paranoia about the supposed threat from other countries or other peoples. It's not unique to other countries, though. There are plenty of examples of delusional paranoia in U.S. history as well. Things like uh, the Salem witch trials or the fear of slave uprisings and the fear of what a freed slave might do to white people. Sure, we have plenty of examples of anti-Catholic sentiments, uh, anti-Semitism here, or even the McCarthy hearings. I mean, the paranoia about communism. And the fear of gays and how they might, quote unquote, corrupt heterosexuals, particularly children, to become homosexual. <laughs> That's right. So let's also talk about examples of non-governmental paranoia. Let's talk about cults, because they're specific examples of how paranoia can be encouraged and used to get people to identify and stay loyal to a group or a belief system, even when it isn't even in their own self-interest, right? And it's often around sort of a you know, messianic individual, like Jim Jones of the People's Temple. And that particular example dramatically impacted our own representative to Congress, Jackie Speer, or David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. There was also the Charles Manson family and those poor cult members belonging to Heaven's Gate who committed mass suicide. None of these cases turned out well, either for the participants in the cult or for their friends, families, and neighbors. So let's examine the more modern U.S. examples, right, of paranoia. You may be familiar, Mark, with this article by a man named Richard Hofstetter. It actually came out in 1964. Uh, he wrote something called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. I mean, it highlighted in 1964 just how serious this issue was and that the right wing specifically in American politics was embracing this approach uh, for their political gain. <laughs> I bet Hofstetter had no idea just how delusionally paranoid those guys were going to get. For sure. But probably the prime example is what happened after 9-11 and our view and our paranoia about supposed Muslim terrorists. I mean, it's really hard to escape how the paranoia generated by what was obviously a truly awful event shaped the politics of so many people and organizations in this country. Make no mistake about it, though. I think we both agree. The Islamic terrorists were a threat, clearly. But collective paranoia created a tremendous overreaction. I mean, among other things, the U.S. abandoned long-held ideals about things like interrogation, justifying the use of torture. And don't forget, we fought a multi-trillion dollar war and killed or maimed thousands of our fellow citizens, not to mention many more Iraqis and others, all to address a threat which really didn't exist, at least not at the level it was sold at. And sadly, 9-11, I think, normalized delusional paranoia as a component of setting public objectives and policies. So that leads us to threats that really don't even exist at all right, at least in the way they're sold, but they're kind of spun as threats. It's related to what we talked about in an earlier podcast as tautological externalities. The first one I think of is like paranoia around Antifa. You know, it's an organization that doesn't even really exist, right? <laughs> or the caravan of immigrants coming to the U.S. who, by and large, were just peaceful people just looking for a better life. Or MS-13, an organization whose threat was severely exaggerated to the average American simply for political gain. Yeah, or the expression, hey, they're coming to take your guns. I mean, a view that even the most liberal lawmakers don't take. Another one that comes to my mind is allowing transgender people to use different bathrooms. A fear of the unknown, but with no evidence of any problem, let alone threat from doing so. And certainly the most recent example, it's in the news all the time right now, is the you know, so-called fraud in the 2020 election. 
the propagation of this paranoia is, of course, terrible for democracy, but it's created serious dangers for people. I mean, the January 6th insurrection, of course, was one of them, but it continues with threat and violence against election workers, elected officials and others. And it, too, seems to have established a new normal based on what just happened in Otura County, New Mexico. In that county, an election commissioner said his no vote on certifying election results wasn't based on any evidence or any facts at all, just a hunch he had. I mean, that's more than just willful ignorance. Not to mention everyone's favorite former mayor, Rudy Giuliani, who said, when asked to provide evidence about voter fraud, well, we've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. Really, Rudy? (laughs) And of course, the ultimate current example of paranoia run wild is QAnon. It is so beyond ridiculous that it's the equivalent of the big lie. It's a premise so nonsensical that clearly people think that it must be true because no one could make that stuff up. (laughs) It's also a great example of the danger of delusional paranoia becoming self-sustaining. QAnon followers can, quote, explain away, unquote, any objective data, I've seen and read them do this, about its failures by declaring the data or the data source to be suspect and therefore safely ignorable. Okay, so there's plenty of examples to talk about. We've just covered a small fraction, and we can just take it as a given that this type of paranoia and paranoid delusions have existed throughout history in countries around the world. It seems to be a little more ramped up in modern U.S. But the question really then is, if paranoia could run amok, as we've discussed, and cause such damage both to individuals and to larger communities— Why in the world does it exist? It almost feels like it should have gotten bred out of the species long ago or something like that. You know, Seth, that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer, but I suspect it's for a very simple reason. Paranoia actually is a survival trait in many circumstances, particularly under primitive conditions. Think about it. If a random stranger or a group of strangers wandered into your village from over the horizon, it's perfectly reasonable to be worried about what their intent and motivations are. Fair enough. So that certainly illustrates, in some ways, paranoia is the opposite of trust, which in turn is a necessary condition for a community to function. I mean, we walk down the street now in our local town because we trust. Most of our neighbors aren't going to harm us. And that's really important because, as we've mentioned in most of our podcasts, the value of the community to an individual is how it enables each of us to do more, to have a better life than we could achieve on our own. So we want to encourage community. We want to have that trust. But is the challenge, though, that as our communities get larger, we are forced to interact with larger and larger numbers of people whom we don't know and indeed will probably never know in any significant fashion. And the main ways we interact with this larger group nowadays is electronically, right, including social media. So it feels like all of that means there's a greater potential for our paranoia butt to get triggered frequently. That reminds me, Seth, about an incident that happened when I was on the city council Our police chief told me, and this was just a few years ago, that a San Carlos resident had called 911 to report a black person walking in their neighborhood as a threat. Although this was indeed terrible, fortunately it was an isolated, relatively private reaction, and of course the police didn't take any action. But if you imagine that same reaction posted on social media, things like Nextdoor or Facebook or what have you, or if it's even propagated by media outlets such as Fox News, that type of reaction has the potential to whip up paranoia, racism, and some primal vigilante instincts in a group of people. And that happened, obviously, you know, just a couple of years ago in Georgia. It also is clearly, in my mind, what Trump was doing when he choreographed having a mob storm the Capitol on January 6th. 
which somehow gets me to think that this itchy trigger finger of paranoia is somehow related to jingoism, which as our listeners probably understand is sort of patriotism that's a bit over the top and it's paranoid and it's insular. I think you're right. Jingoism, fear of another tribe or nationality simply because they aren't your tribe or nationality, is a kind of paranoid reaction. It seems like it's the institutional version of individual paranoia. And as we, again, like to remind ourselves, at some level, it's not necessarily an unreasonable reaction. There was a time when the Soviets were really out to get us on some level. (laughs) On some level, that's right. But it can be triggered so often by events that it overwhelms and undermines whatever value it otherwise creates. Yeah, we've seen that every nation state is prone to jingoism. I mean, particularly if they're relatively successful on the world stage. You know, Mark, I think this is a topic we should revisit for a future podcast. I think there's some connection among paranoia, jingoism, and notions like American exceptionalism. But let's save that for now, and let's turn to where we are today. It sure seems to me like as a society, we are evidencing more and more paranoia, and particularly more and more delusional paranoia. Is this all due to our society just getting bigger and more complex? Boy, I hope not, because that would define some kind of upper limit on how big and complex society can get, which would in turn place a limit on how much cool new stuff we could create, how much new wealth we could generate, and how many new opportunities we could define for ourselves. Yeah, that would be a problem for sure. So, But something seems to be fostering more and more strident paranoia. What do you suspect it is? I think some of the same forces are in operation here that we identified in the brain frog episode. These are things which tend to fuel ignorance and therefore are also fueling paranoia. I mean, first and foremost, think about Fox News and similar outlets. They commercialize paranoia in order to capture eyeballs and make money. And they can do it on a scale that earlier media companies could only dream of. Similar motivations exist for every social media platform. As we mentioned, it's a downside of democratizing information. Posts fueling paranoia are very hard to distinguish from posts sharing expert knowledge. And we certainly can't let the modern Republican Party off the hook. I mean, we know that all political parties tend to appeal to paranoia. But since the 1980s, the GOP has tightly aligned itself with forces like religious fundamentalism that are highly intolerant and particularly sensitive to appeals to paranoia, wouldn't you say? I would. I also think we shouldn't lose track of an important historical development. Before 1989, we had a ready-made, built-in, real boogeyman, the Soviet Union, and the not unrealistic possibility that civilization really could be destroyed in any six-month period. Yeah, I guess that's right. And once that external threat largely disappeared, its value as a political motivator did too. So I guess we had to find and pursue substitutes. (laughs) Seth, I remember asking myself when the Soviet Union fell, Gee, I wonder what the GOP is going to do now to motivate voters. (laughs) I never dreamed they'd do what they've actually done, although I guess in hindsight I should have expected it. Well, I mean, certainly one of the things that they latched onto was the 9-11 attacks. I mean, everything was aggravated by that. And in some way, that was fundamentally an attack from within. Worse, when someone or an organization figures out how to monetize paranoia, there's a little practical limit how far they could run with it. I mean, after all, selling paranoia makes money. And it does, clearly, when packaged properly. It creates a sort of loyal customer base that any profit-maximizing entity is going to dish out as much paranoia as it possibly can. (laughs) Wait a minute. Hang on a second, Seth. It sounds like you're asserting a failure of market capitalism. Why doesn't the market for news simply compete away that kind of paranoia? That's a really good question. But, you know, I think it's similar to what we discussed in our first podcast in that we asserted that for capitalism to work well, it requires perfect or close to perfect information between the buyer and the seller. 
Just like we talked about the nutritional label on a soup can. Just like that can, if every Tucker Carlson broadcast had a warning label that most things you're about to hear are BS, right? (laughs) It's possible the invisible hand would manage out this type of bad product. And also what I find really interesting is that if anything, popular entertainment media, including almost every single popular talk show host, has been making fun of these delusions and the people who promote them, yet it doesn't seem to move the needle. I mean, if anything, maybe it even serves to entrench everyone, whether it's Tucker Carlson or Ted Cruz or Donald Trump or whoever. Maybe what's happening is that once a listener starts accepting a delusion, the paranoid state itself will start rejecting any information, however accurate, which refutes the basis of the paranoia. Yeah, and asking the news divisions of media companies not to foster too much paranoia is potentially like asking the fox to guard the hen house, right? <laughs> they are media companies and, and masters of storytelling. But unlike in the past, they're now profit-maximizing enterprises. It's one of the reasons I hardly ever watch TV news and haven't for decades. It's much harder, in my experience, to back-channel into someone's mind through text than it is through visual media, probably because processing and understanding text is a much higher level brain function than simply seeing or hearing something. Humans can see from within a week or so of birth. Learning to read and understanding what you've read, that takes years. Okay, Mark, so let's talk about the consequences of delusional paranoia, right? First on an individual level, and then let's expand it to the societal level. It's obviously fairly terrible on the individual level, but in that case, delusional paranoia is still generally more harmful to the individual than it is to the larger community. Throughout history, all communities have had members that they generally have recognized as quote-unquote crazy, who are mostly just ignored or kept off the public stage in various ways. And that could be anyone from the Unabomber to the cult leaders that we just talked about. And I know on the local level, I will never forget a San Carlos resident who, when the council was limiting where firearm stores could be located, proclaimed in a highly emotional speech that he was so concerned about what we were doing, he'd gone out and bought a shotgun in order to protect the community. Right. Every local community has its friendly neighborhood conspiracy theorists, but at least until recently, they were just tolerated and didn't affect the workings of government. But a shared delusional paranoia, one which involves a non-trivial fraction of the community, that can be really dangerous as it creates a herd mentality and encourages groupthink. What's even worse, the people sharing that delusion can reinforce it with each other, making it harder for anyone having the delusion to recognize they're no longer in close contact with reality. I mean, moreover, it seems like there's a feedback loop in how delusions propagate, and we should all independently determine if the facts we base our decisions on are true, but that takes a lot of time and effort. So in practice, we tend to evaluate truthiness based on how often we hear the same assertion as fact from different people. I mean, a shared delusion is sadly a wonderful way to get a whole bunch of people asserting the same fallacy. And Mark, this is where I worry if ultimately the history books will write that this is the cause of the death of democracy, at least in the U.S. I sure hope that doesn't happen, Seth, for obvious reasons, and also because I think that the U.S. has always had the potential to be a tremendous leader. I guess I still believe in American exceptionalism that way. We also have to recognize there are other ways to take advantage of our inherent laziness in assessing truth. Hitler and others have showed how you can achieve the same result by simply having enough people, in a coordinated fashion, repeat the same message on the community stage. They don't even have to suffer from the delusion to be effective. The mere widespread repetition can snowball. Trump did exactly the same thing, right? I mean, he did it throughout his presidency. And we're now still dealing with that big lie that came at the end of the 2020 election. I mean, it became the big delusion. Again, something so outrageous and far-fetched that people assume no one would be bold enough to make it up. 
To make matters worse, our wonderfully connected world now makes it much, much easier for previously scattered fringe element types to find and reinforce each other. All of these reasons highlight why delusional paranoia is really dangerous over the long haul. And we have to recognize that in the context of this really strong human desire to avoid cognitive dissonance, we reject truth because the previously accepted false narrative has already been internalized and accepted. And that's a really important part and a really dangerous cocktail. You generally can't convince someone who has bought into a delusion with facts, however cleverly and cogently delivered. Yeah, I mean, in practice, they have to choose for themselves to reject the false narrative. And I don't know how they do that. It takes time, and it's really hard to do when you're talking about delusional paranoia, because delusions are easily malleable. They can generally already explain away any fact. When you couple that to what you just talked about, which is the avoidance of cognitive dissonance, the end result is generally that the person suffering from the delusion has to, solely by themselves, decide to reject it. No outside argument is ever going to do it. Yeah, and that's why it's really hard to escape a cult. I mean, not just physically, but intellectually and emotionally. You know, Mark, I want to go back to what I just mentioned earlier, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but this discussion is really still making me think that these paranoid delusions may end up killing our sort of modern democratic system of government. I mean, it feels like we came very close after the 2020 election. We saw an attempted coup, and there's not a lot of evidence to say it won't happen again or that we won't somehow trigger another civil war. Yeah, I worry about that too, Seth. You may remember I often said after Trump was even just elected that had he been as smart as Adolf Hitler, we would have been in a lot of trouble. We actually were aided by the fact that he was not terribly clever. I don't know. The Civil War possibility is certainly one in recent polling. It's on a lot of people's radar right now. I'm not sure myself how likely that is, but I agree with you that the possibility of our nation state dissolving is a real possibility, and it unfortunately seems to be getting more, not less likely. Well, we've painted a pretty dark picture here. <laughs> unfortunately, it may be a realistic picture, and at the core of why I think this period of history is fraught with danger for the health of the American experiment. We also have to be honest, Seth, and recognize that maybe we are delving into our own delusional paranoia when we talk about the possible end of the American experiment. Although I like to think that the fact we're recognizing we might be deluding ourselves means, unfortunately, that we're probably not. In any case, it sure seems like we should remain diligent and sober about the dangerous current period that we're in. Agreed. So what are the things we can do to increase the odds that the experiment does not fail? First and foremost, we need to practice critical thinking on all matters of public policy, including, and very importantly, our selection of elected leaders. Almost all candidates paint dark futures that only they can rescue us from in order to get elected. Right. But we could choose not to put in office anyone who does a little too much of that or who doesn't demonstrate a commitment to live and work in the real world, finding practical solutions to real problems and avoiding trying to make fake problems into real ones. We also need to guard against indulging in what we've called in other podcasts fundamentalist thinking. Public policy decisions, even when they appear simple, are inherently complex. Ignoring nuances, forcing facts to fit a narrow-minded, predetermined view of the world is, as a result, pretty dangerous for the community as a whole, and we just need to not do that. You know, and another thing we can do, although it's really hard, is to challenge our friends, relatives, and neighbors, you know, when they fail to think critically. That doesn't mean, by the way, stop talking to them. It means challenge their analytical mistakes, refute their policy recommendations, even if you don't happen to have one of your own to offer instead, and generally make it known that you just don't think they're thinking clearly. 
But as I said, it's a challenge. I remember one time for me that maybe it worked okay. I remember a few years back, I was talking with someone I knew who was in North Carolina. And this person was clearly nervous about the prospect of people choosing what bathroom they go to based on their preferred gender identity. And I remember just telling them in a very neutral, you know, non-confrontational tone, which, you know, frankly, is very hard for me, as my wife will uh, testify to. Um, (laughs) But I remember telling them in this sort of neutral language that, you know what, in California, this has been true for some time. And literally, I've never heard a single issue or complaint from anyone. It's really not a big deal. That's a great story, Seth, and I think it's a good example about how, because humans are social animals, you can use the connections to try and change minds. However much we don't like being challenged on our views, we generally don't want to be isolated, either physically or intellectually, particularly not from our friends, relatives, and neighbors. Well, Mark, I'm pretty exhausted now from this conversation, so um, thanks for another depressing one. So next time, we're going to talk about war and famine? (laughs) I think we need to find a lighter topic for the next episode. Okay, we'll, we'll work on that. I look forward to it. Well, thank you to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Hoping you've been enjoying your membership in the cult of the Boiling Frog. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.